Open your Bibles with me this morning to the book of 1 John chapter 3. I want to read to you a scripture that we were singing about just a moment ago and something Sarah ministered to us as well. It's in 1 John chapter 3 and verse 1. 1 John 3, 1, the first word of this verse is behold. Somebody say behold. What in the world does that mean? It's not a word we use very often. Behold. I don't know when the last time you said that to somebody was. Hey, behold. But it just simply means look. It means I want to show you something. And you could say it if, if you're looking one direction and somebody's looking in another direction and you want them to look the way you're looking, to turn their attention this way, you'd say, behold. Or you might say, look at this. Look at this. I want to show you this. And that's what this word is trying to communicate here in this verse. Behold, look, I want you to see it. And that's the way other translations say it. See, what are we supposed to be looking at? Behold, what manner of love the Father. Can you say the Father? Behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called the children of God. Therefore, the world does not know us because it did not know him. What is it we're supposed to be looking at? What is the Spirit of God saying here through John? Behold, look, I want to show you something. We're supposed to be looking at the love. Looking at the love of the Father. Today's Father's Day, and it's a special day. I don't always look to the calendar and what's going on based on the calendar to, to, to know what to say to you on a Sunday morning. But I was impressed a couple of days ago, just laying in bed one night, asking the Lord what he had in his heart for this weekend. And, and some things kept coming to my heart specifically about the love of the Father. And he said in this verse, this is what our eyes is supposed to be on. The love, behold, look at the love of the Father. The love that the Father has bestowed upon us. One translation, the, the Weist translation says it like this. Behold, check this out. What exotic and foreign to the human heart love the Father has permanently bestowed on us. Exotic and foreign to the human heart. Exotic. I like that word describing the love of God, foreign to the human heart. Or in other words, before this agape love of God had come on the scene, the human heart had never experienced anything like this, never seen anything like it. The only love that man had ever known was a circumstantial love. In other words, it was a love based on what was happening, what they could see, what they could feel, what they could put their hands on. And, and love for somebody else had, had limits. I love you as long as you're doing for me, as long as you're giving to me. And if you do for me, I'll do for you. If, if you won't for me, I won't for you. Those were the limitations of human love. But then the love of God shows up. Not just the love of God, the love of the Father. The Father. 
And this was an exotic love. This was a foreign to the human heart kind of love. This was a love that said, I'm, I'm going to do for you even though you never have done for me. I'm going to love you even when you hated me. I'm going to love you when you were dead in sin, dead in trespasses. I'm going to love you despite, in spite of anything you've ever done. And the human heart's going, wait, what? Look, huh? Doesn't even make sense. Not to the rational mind, no. And this is one of the things, and we're going to get to this today, but we're going to have to stop trying to comprehend the love of the Father just with the brain. It won't work. I said it won't work. Jesus was speaking in the book of Luke chapter 12. He said some very weighty things in this chapter. But he said to him, this is an interesting thing. He said, do not fear those who kill the body. Don't be afraid of somebody who can kill you. He said, I'll tell you who you should fear. Fear the one who, after he's killed you, can throw you into hell. Not words of Jesus we talk about a lot. Fear him, he said. Ugh. I'm so glad that chapter didn't stop right there. Because the very next verse... Jesus began asking questions. He said, are not a few sparrows sold for a few copper coins? And yet your heavenly father, to, to him, you're worth more than they are. He went on to say, the very hairs of your head are numbered. You know what he said on the tail end of that? Therefore, do not fear. Isn't that interesting? Just like a verse and a half ago, he was like, you should fear the one who can kill you and throw you into hell. And if, and if that's all you knew about God, then yeah, you'd be in terror of him all the time. But here's what Jesus said. Don't fear him. Why? He loves you. The one who has the power to kill and throw you into hell, instead of doing that, you know what he's doing? He's loving you. He's loving you. How do you know he loves you? Well, Jesus used this as an example. He said, he knows the very numbers of the hairs on your head. Now, there's a few people in my life that I love, and I love dearly. I love greatly, and I have no idea how many hairs they have. And we've heard this verse for years and years and years. Oh, he knows how many hairs you've had. And usually people, that, they usually take that opportunity to make a joke. Some of you guys, it's easier to count now than it used to be. <laughs> oh, Lord. But actually, if you read the, the original writing of this, there's something in the language, and I found this in a commentary once, that, that doesn't just, it doesn't just convey the idea that he knows how many hairs you have. It conveys the idea they're all numbered. In other words, you could take one out, and he could tell you what number it is. My question is, okay, why? Why? And I believe what Jesus is saying is your father loves you beyond your ability to, to mentally, rationally wrap your eight pounds of grain batter around it. So quit trying. Don't try to grasp it here. He loves you way beyond your ability to grasp it here. The love of the father. Behold, what are we supposed to be looking at? The love of of the father. I've been thinking about my dad the last couple of days. 
And when I was in junior high, my dad took on a new role in my life. For the first, what, 13, 14 years of my life, he was dad, just dad. But in junior high, I think long about seventh grade, my dad, my mom and dad, became the pastors of the church we were attending. And we'd gone to this church for years, and there'd been uh, a couple of different pastors, and the church had been small. But when mom and dad took the church, I'm telling you, the, this grace and anointing came on them, and it came on the place, and it grew, man, and it grew quick. We were a small church, maybe, on a big Sunday, a couple of hundred people. But right after mom and dad stepped in, it began growing. It doubled and it doubled again, and there's hundreds and hundreds of people now coming. And it's not just a one Sunday morning service. It turned into two, then it turned into three. And so much of my life, junior high, high school, the years beyond, were spent right there on the front row listening to my dad preach. He became my pastor. And it was a new role for him to have in my life. And I've often toyed around with the idea of writing a book my life on the front row, the trials and triumphs of a full-time preacher's kid. And I figured out something real quick, man. When, when mom and dad are the pastors and you live life right there on the front row, you, you basically living in a fishbowl. But I told my mom something one time. I said, I figured out, look, if you're going to live in a fishbowl, you might as well just keep the glass clean. You know, just, and I, I also learned an important lesson that no matter what I tried to hide, my mom talks to God and he talks back. So there was no use in trying to hide anything. But I did, I sat there on that front row for years, junior high, high school, and the years passed. And I listened to my dad preach. And I listened to him pastor this church and pastor our family. And I, I don't know how many, seemed like hundreds, I suppose, of messages that I heard him preach. And good messages, messages on faith and family and messages on healing and salvation and prosperity and wonderful things. And I watched my dad's personality come out in his preaching. And uh, there was one year, though, I think I was about 18, 19 years old. I think maybe I just graduated from high school. And my dad preached a message, and it was a message that came to define him. It defined him as a man, it defined him as a minister, and it became the message that for years, people in our church and people even outside our church who were hearing him, that's what they knew him for, was, was that word. He preached a message called, my father loves me. My father loves me. And it came out of a unique time in my dad's life. At that point, they were probably, they were less than 10 years into pastoring. I think in the next year or so, I think they're getting ready to celebrate 30. I'd have to go back and count. So this is still relatively early on. But like I said, I mean, it was pedal to the metal from day one. And the growth that was taking place around him. And when the church grows, then the staff grows. And it's a big domino effect. And of course, responsibility grows. And there came a time in my dad's life, like I said, when I was about 18, 19 years old, where there had been so much going on. They had just, within the last year of that time, built a new sanctuary. 
The church had so outgrown this little chapel that we were in and people were coming and had two little tiny bathrooms in the back and every Sunday there was a line out the door. People trying to get into these bathrooms and space was so limited. We had to build this sanctuary. And if you've ever launched into a building project of any size, any kind, you know it takes a lot. Well, we went from a chapel that sat, I don't know, maybe 300 people, something like that, to building a sanctuary that sat... 15, 1800 people. This is a big jump. Takes a lot of time, takes a lot of money, takes a lot of people. And I look back on it now and I can see that was a really intense time in my parents' life and in their ministry. And I think it was probably one summer we were getting away as a family vacationing and we went up to Cape Cod, Massachusetts. That's where my dad's from. And so I spent my whole childhood, at least once, if not twice a year, going to see family, my grandparents up in the Northeast, loved them, loved that part of the country. I feel like so much of who I am comes from from that side of my family, my dad's side of the family. And so here we go again. We're we're loading up. We're going to go see grandma and grandpa. But dad says in this message, my father loves me, that the first day we got there, I guess we had gotten there, gone to bed, slept that night. And he said the first day that he woke up, there, the Lord spoke to him and said, stay in bed, which you got to know my dad. That's a big thing. My dad's like up with the sun, man. I mean, and he's, he's going, he's, he's praying. He's before the Lord. He's working. He's working out. He's got a staff and, and there's a lot going on. So if dad sleeps in, it's like all the way to 645, you know, <laughs> I did not get that gene, <laughs> but he had that. And when he woke up that morning, the Lord said, stay in bed. And the Lord spoke to him and said, I want you to take the next hour and think about my love. And dad said in this message that he had come to a place just before that in his life and in his ministry where he was hungry for a relationship with his father. Not his earthly natural father. He had that one with his heavenly father. Now, here's somebody who's been pastoring for years and in the ministry for years and years before that. And you might think, shouldn't you have a relationship with the father? And of course he had one, but can you hear this? There's a hunger for more, a desire for more. You might think, well, you're a pastor. You're you're supposed to have a relationship with God. Well, that's certainly true. But just because there is a very significant spiritual element to what I and Sarah and other pastors do, you got to understand, it's also a job. And even if you love your job, you ever had a day where you didn't love your job? One of those days, one of those weeks, one of those months, maybe one of those years. And here he, here he was right on the heels of this major building project. And I remember as a kid watching mom and dad go through this. And there was a time we had gone away, I think, or maybe they had. And came home early from the trip because the building was getting more expensive by a million dollars every day he was gone. He's like, I need to go home. (laughs) And that kind of pressure was on him. It had become a job. And he said in this message that he had developed, even in ministry, an assembly line mentality. Going through motions, putting things together. Next, next, next. And there was this hunger in him for a relationship a freshness with the father. He talked about how without realizing it, he had 
moved over into this performance mentality where he had found himself, and maybe he wouldn't have said it this way, but he realized it later, trying to earn the love of God. Look what I'm doing in the church. Look what we're doing in the ministry. And the Lord told him, stay in bed. And I want you to lay there. And for the next hour, just think, just meditate on my love for you. And so that's what he did. And he had such a unique experience with the father. And, and to talk about it, it's so simple, but I watched the way it impacted him. And I watched what came out of him after that. And it was this message and this, this not just a message, but a new way of life. And dad said, he, as he laid there in bed, the, only, the, the big revelation that came out of that hour, you want to know what it was? My father loves me. There it was. The big revelation. My father loves me. Where'd that come from? Beholding the love. Just sitting there, laying there, thinking about it, meditating on it. That's what beholding, that's what it is. That's how you do it. He's looking at the love of God. And the big revelation that came out was, my father loves me. And what the Lord was able to minister to him in that time was, George, I love you right now. And there's nothing you can do that makes me love you anymore. There's nothing you can do that makes me love you less. He said, I love you. He said, I love you without another sermon preached. I love you without another project accomplished. I love you without another soul saved in an altar call. I love you. And the big, heavy revelation that came out of that time was my father loves me. And what an impact it had on his life. And of course, the impact it had on our home, our family. I laugh sometimes that, you know, my dad was, was and is such a wonderful dad. So loved our family, loved us so good. I was thinking this morning about the, the, the cussing problem, though, that my dad really had. And I don't mean that to say that he cussed a lot. I actually mean the very opposite. He was horrible at it. There's... I can only think of one time that my dad ever got so frustrated with me that he cussed and I laugh about it. It's a joke in our family now because it made no sense. <laughs> he was a horrible cusser, horrible in the sense that he never did it, couldn't make any sense of it. I won't tell you what he said, but he took one word. And if I were to tell you that word, most of you are like, is that really a cuss word? For him, it was. And he took that word and he took this other word that was also pretty benign and then made like a compound cuss word out of them that made no sense at all. I'm like, that's my dad. What a man of love. Can't even cuss right. That's, that's, the, that's the man I grew up with. That's, that's the, the love of God that was in our house. Can't even cuss right. But he got a revelation in that time. It was a revelation that the father loves me. Can you say that out loud? My father loves me. Say it like this. I have a daddy and he loves me. He loves me. Here in the book of first John, as you read it, you begin to realize that's what this theme of this book is. It's about the fatherhood of God and the place we have as sons and daughters in his family. And we would do ourselves a favor to remind ourselves often, all the time, that what we're a part of as Christians is not a religion. It's a father 
and his family. And that's what God was hungry for when he created man. Hungry for fellowship. Hungry for a family. Here in 1 John, I was reading to you from chapter 3, but even if you just back up into chapter 2, he said in verse 15, don't love the things or don't love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, it's not of the Father, the Father, the Father. And if you take this little book of 1 John as a whole, you see that coming over and over again. The Father, the Father, and he uses this language. He talks about how we are of God. He says we are born of God. That's here in chapter 4. Look at that. He said in verse 4, you are of God, little children. Can you see this? What does it mean to be of God? Well, I have two children, Justice, our daughter Jessie. That is Justice of Jeremy. That is Jessie of Jeremy, her father. He's talking about being born of God. He said, you are of God, little children. You've overcome them because he who is in you is greater than he who's in the world. Look at verse 7. But I want to read these verses to you. But every time you see the word God, I want you to see and say and think the Father. And it'll help you renew your mind to the one that we're talking about is God, but he's not just God. He's your Father. He said in verse 7, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of the Father. Everyone who loves is born of the Father and knows the Father. He who does not love does not know the Father, for the Father is love. In this, the love of the Father was manifested toward us, that God sent his only begotten Son into the world, that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we love the Father, but that he, the Father, loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if the Father so loved us, we also ought to love one another. He said, no one has seen the Father at any time. If we love one another, the Father abides in us, and the Father's love has been perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him, and he, the Father in us, because the Father has given us of his Spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent the Son as the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of the Father, the Father abides in him. Can you see what's happening every time you say that? Your mind's being renewed. I've got a daddy. I'm not a fatherless orphan. I have a father. And on top of that, he loves me. Say it again. My father loves me. He said in verse 16, we have known and believed the love that the father has for us. The father is love. And he who abides in love abides in the father and the father in him. Thank you, Lord. One of the key verses that came out of that message from dad that the Lord ministered to him was found in the book of Deuteronomy chapter seven. You don't have to turn there. Just listen to it. It says in verse six, Deuteronomy seven, six, he said, you're a holy people to the Lord, your God. Or I'm going to say it to you like this today. You're a holy people to the Lord, your father. He said, the Lord, your father has chosen you to be a people for himself, a special treasure above all the peoples of the face of the earth. The Lord did not set his love on you or choose you because you were more in number than any other people. 
He said, for you are the least of all the peoples. But verse 8, but because the Lord loves you. And because he would keep the oath which he swore to your fathers, the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of bondage, from the hand of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. Why did he do that for them? Because he loved them. Because he loved them. Did you notice this? He said, he didn't choose you because you're more than everybody else. When God was choosing this nation, he did not choose them like somebody picks teammates for their basketball team. I'll take the big guy. I'll take the strong one. That's not how God chose these people. He said, he didn't choose you because you were more. He didn't choose you because you were mightier. He didn't choose you because you were impressive to look at. He said, as a matter of fact, you were least than all the people. Why'd he choose you? Come on, church. Why'd he choose you? Love. One reason, love. When he was looking at us, we were not the biggest kids. We were not the most powerful kids in the line. We were not the strongest, most impressive looking. Why did he choose us? Love. My father loves me. The New Living Translation says it like this. He said, the Lord did not set his heart on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other nations. You were the smallest of all the nations. Rather, it was simply that the Lord loves you. Man, that's it. It was simply that the Lord loves you. Not something you did to impress him. Not something you did to earn his respect or to earn anything from him. He loves you. Come on again. My father loves me. My father loves me. And that's what this book of 1 John is about. Uh, go to the book of Ephesians with me, chapter 3. Another familiar scripture to you. Ephesians chapter 3. Talking about the love of God or the love of the Father. And we're going to do that all the way through this message today. In the few minutes that we have remaining here, every time we see God, what are we going to say? The Father. In Ephesians chapter 3, in verse 14... I'll read it to you from the New King James, then I want you to see it from the Amplified Bible. He said, for this reason, this is Paul writing by the Spirit of God. For this reason, I bow my knees to who? The Father. I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. That has to do with our identity. Who we are in Him and who He is in us. We've been given a name. And I don't know that we fully understand that. But when somebody puts their name on something, depending on who that somebody was, man, it can change the whole value of it. You can take any old given object, but when somebody puts their name on it, it can increase the value of that exponentially. I mean, you can go to Walmart this afternoon and buy a baseball, right? And spend what? Maybe a couple of bucks, three, four bucks on a baseball. But what if you had a baseball that had somebody's name on it? I don't know, like Babe Ruth, Mickey Mantle. Just a name, right? Same balls. Matter of fact, this one's new and this one's really old. And yet you got one that's worth a few bucks and you got one that might be worth thousands. Why? What's the difference? The name. Come on, say it. The name. The name. There's a name on it. 
there's a name that's been written on it. There's a name that's been given to it. You and I have been given a name. There's been a name that's been put on us. You are autographed. <laughs> you are a collector's item. And as soon as that name got put on you, you went from a cheap clay pot to something priceless, something precious, something valuable. How did the value change so much? The name. He put his name on you and it was the name of the father and it's the name that we've been given. The whole family in heaven and earth has been named with the name of the father. And he's praying here in verse 16 that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with might through his spirit in the inner man that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith that you being rooted and grounded in what? In love. You gotta have some roots. In this life, you gotta have some roots. You've gotta be grounded in something. If you're not, you are gonna be tossed to and fro. You are gonna be up, you're gonna be down, you are gonna be an emotional roller coaster. You're gonna be all over the place if you got no roots. Come on, you need some roots that go down deep. What do roots do? They act as an anchor. And when the wind blows on the surface and when the sun is up and the heat is on on the surface and the floods come on the surface, there's something beneath the surface that's anchoring you, that's holding you down. Roots act as an anchor. What else do roots do? Roots are the life source. Roots tap in to nutrition and, and water and a supply that's unseen. And no matter what's happening up on top, if those roots can access life down below, you can keep this thing alive. You need some roots. And according to this scripture, what are we supposed to be rooted and grounded in? Love. Love. Now, if you're not careful, you'll read that and think, you know what? Dadgummit, you're right. I got to walk in love. I've been a real jerk and I've got to be. All right, Monday morning. We're starting this love thing. And I'm going to be nice and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hold my temper and I'm going to be patient and I'm going to be kind. I'm going to walk in love. I'm going to walk in love. I'm going to walk in love so hard. I'm going to walk in love. I'm a, these people are not going to know what hit them. I'm going to love them so good. Walk in love. Walk in love. Walk in love. Walk in love. I promise you, you are about to be the biggest jerk you have ever been. Why? Because you're looking to yourself as the source of love. When he said be rooted and grounded in love, he wasn't talking first about you loving that's fruit, not root. I hope you heard that. You and I showing love is fruit. It's the fruit of the Spirit. It's the result of what we're rooted in. So if we're not rooted in our love for each other, what are we rooted in? My Father loves me. There's your root. Did you hear me? That's your root. For this whole life, that's your root. You got to have a center. You got to have a starting place. And if your starting place when it comes to God is how much he loves you, 
then let whatever doctrine come and doctrine go and, and let this one say that about God and this one and their theology. And you can let all the winds of doctrine blow, but you don't have to be confused by any of it. Why? I may not know all that, but I know he loves me. You know how many questions that would answer? Well, I heard God will put some sickness on you. Wait a second. He loves me. Did that just answer that question right there? He loves me so much. He gave me cancer. That doesn't, wait a second. That doesn't, no, no. He loves me. He loves me. What makes more sense? He loves me. So he made me sick or he loves me. So he healed me. He loves me. He loves me. And I know questions arise and, and things that puzzle us come up and things we don't have all the answers to, but I know this. He loves me. My father loves me. I'm rooted in it. I'm grounded in it, established in it. He goes on to say, I want you to be rooted and grounded in love. He said, I'm praying in verse 18 that you, now listen, this is huge. This is so big that you would be able to comprehend. What did I tell you just a moment ago? Quit trying to wrap your brain around it. But just because your brain is still catching up with it doesn't mean your heart can't comprehend it. This is where we comprehend these things. It's not with the head, it's with the heart. He said, I'm praying that you would comprehend. That means to have a working understanding of all, comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and depth and height and to know the love of Christ. Now, does that, does that not fly in the face of every religious thing you've ever been taught about the love of God? Oh, we could never understand. His love is just too much. We could never understand. We could never, I could never know. Well, if you're talking about with the brain, fine. But look at how subtle the enemy has been to convince believers for generations that it's the right mentality and the right thing to say over and over and over. I could not understand the love. Can you see the trick of the enemy here to convince people you can't understand it? So quit trying. And if the enemy could talk you out of how much, how much you are loved, then faith won't operate because faith works by love or faith works, but not until you know how much you're loved. So do me this favor and do yourself this favor. Never say again that you can't comprehend the love of God. Never say again that you can't understand the love of God. Sure, you may not know everything there is to know, but there's no reason you and I shouldn't know more about it today than we did yesterday. And there's no reason we shouldn't increase in it tomorrow and have a greater comprehension of the love of God tomorrow than we did today. And an even greater one the day after that. And the rest of this life is supposed to be spent increasing in our comprehension and knowing what is the width and the depth and the length and the height of the love of God that you would know the love of Christ. Growing in it every single day. And the more you grow in this, the deeper your roots grow, go down into it. Say it again. My father loves me. 
My Father loves me. And he said, I'm praying that you comprehend with all the saints. This is something every believer is supposed to know. This is something every believer the world over is supposed to have a working comprehension and an understanding of how much, how greatly, how deeply we are loved by the Father. And how different church would be if every last one of us came in here with this full-blown revelation, I'm loved. I am, so, I am so loved. I am so deeply, passionately, madly loved by God. There'd be no strife among us. Oh my goodness. If every saint comprehended the love of God. And this is what he's praying. Do you see this? This is what the Spirit of God is leading this man to pray for us. That you would comprehend it. And then he said that you would know. That you would know the love of Christ which passes all knowledge. What does that mean? That you would know something that passes knowledge. Well, listen to it from the Amplified Bible. He said it like this. Verse 14 again. For this reason, seeing the greatness of this plan by which you are built together in Christ, I bow my knees before the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that Father from whom all fatherhood takes its title and derives its name. May he grant you out of the rich treasury of his glory to be strengthened and reinforced with mighty power in the inner man by the Holy Spirit himself indwelling your inmost being and personality. May Christ through faith actually dwell, settle down, abide, make his permanent home in your heart. May you be rooted deep in love, founded securely on love that you may have the power and be strong to apprehend and grasp with all the saints, God's devoted people, listen, the experience of that love. What is the breadth and length and height and depth of it that you may really come to know practically through experience, there's that word again, for yourselves, the love of Christ, which far surpasses mere knowledge without experience. So now can you see what he's talking about? I'm praying that you would know something that passes knowledge. What he's saying is there's two different kinds of knowledge. There is knowledge with experience and there's knowledge without experience. Which do you suppose is most valuable? Knowledge with it or knowledge without experience? I ask people this all the time. Who do you want flying your plane? Somebody with knowledge and no experience or somebody with knowledge and experience? Who do you want? Who do you want flying the plane? You want knowledge with experience, right? What if I gave you two options? Option A was this, this pilot, high time military pilot, flew everything the military had to offer. He was in emergency situations, combat situations, lived to tell about all of it and retired military, went into commercial aviation, flew the biggest, baddest commercial stuff all over the world, wrote the book on every, emerge, every imaginable emergency situation, 15, 20,000 hours in the cockpit. And that's knowledge with experience. So that's one option. Or you got this other guy who's seen Top Gun like 15 times. <laughs> no, I mean it. He's read a bunch of books. He's just a real airplane enthusiast. I mean, he's read aviation books. He subscribes to like three different aviation magazines. 
He could point to a plane and tell you what kind of plane it is, could tell you all about the engine, could tell you all about the operating systems. I mean, this guy knows a ton about airplanes. The only thing is he's never flown one. Who do you want flying the plane? Knowledge with experience, knowledge without experience. You want knowledge with and I'm sad to say it, but so much, it seems to me, the body of Christ is full of people that have a bunch of knowledge about God with not enough experience. They can rattle off a bunch of scriptures about all the love of God and how God so loved the world that he gave his only son and that he's drawn us with an everlasting love. Yes. And because of his great love and his love and his love and his love. That's wonderful knowledge. You ever tasted any of it? ever experienced any of it? I feel like I know you well enough now, church, to know that you're not satisfied, just like me. You are not satisfied to come in here week after week after week, load up on a bunch of knowledge and never have an encounter, never have an experience with the love of God. What did my dad get just by being obedient to the Lord? Stay in bed and think about my love. He got a bunch of scriptures, right? Got, got a bunch more knowledge. Ooh, I got some, I got a good outline that I could go back and preach. No, he got an experience. He got an encounter with the love of God. It was an experience. It was a knowledge of the love that passed, passed knowledge without experience. And that's the kind of thing that will root you and ground you deep in the love of God that you would know it with experience. Thank you, Lord. Just a couple more verses here and we'll wrap this up. Go to the book of Romans with me. Romans chapter eight. We sang about this a moment ago too. Romans chapter eight and verse 14. This is a verse we looked at together a couple of weeks ago when I was with you last week, talking about being led by the Spirit of God. It says in verse 14, as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear. That's not a spirit that's from God. God's not given us the spirit of fear. But what did we receive? He says it here. You received the spirit of adoption. The spirit of adoption. Is there anybody in our church that's adopted? Any hands? I see that. I see another one. I have always been, I don't know the right word, fascinated by that. And just the idea of, of a child growing up in a home and being told years later, by the ones, the mom and the dad, who they've called mom and dad for years, listen, we, we adopted you. And what's interesting to me about that is that can go one of two ways in somebody's life. Somebody can find that out about their past. Wow, I'm adopted. And the first thing the enemy brings to the heart and mind of that person, and correct me if I'm wrong, the first thing the enemy brings is you weren't wanted. You had a mom or you had a dad, but they, they, they didn't want you. But if that person will listen to the voice of God and not the voice of the enemy, 
they'll actually hear just the opposite. They will hear, I wanted you. I picked you. And that's what somebody who carries that spirit of adoption has that really the rest of the world around you doesn't have. My parents didn't have a ton of choice when it came to me. And you notice that first verse we read today out of 1 John chapter 3, he said, look at the love, behold what manner of love this is, that we should be called the children of God. And the Amplified Bible says, and so we are. That's the proof of the love of the Father. He calls you his child. Anybody else have kids? Ever been tempted to not claim them? I can remember a handful of times in my childhood where my mom looked at my dad and said, that's your son. He's your child. Oh, sure. Yeah, we've all been tempted at one time or another. Is this seriously my kid? Was there a mix-up? Somebody tell me there was a mix-up. Ever been tempted to not claim that child as yours? Your father, your heavenly father, will never, are you listening to me? Never not claim you. Even in spite of the dumb stuff we've done, even in spite of the mistakes we've made, even in spite of the mistakes we've made again and again, he will never turn his head in shame. I say, that's got to be somebody else's kid. (laughs) Never. He will never not claim you. That's the spirit of adoption. And the enemy will try to tell you, you're unwanted. But the spirit of adoption will tell you, I picked you. I chose you. And again, it wasn't based on anything outward. You weren't the biggest. You weren't the baddest. You weren't the strongest. Well, then why'd you pick me? Love. I loved you. And doesn't that sound like a conversation between a parent and a child? I did this. Why? It's time for this. Why? You ever had children have the, the, the but why conversation with you? Time to go do this. But why? But why? But why? And those of you who are parents, maybe you found yourself in conversation with a child and you're doing your best to help that three-year-old understand the reason why. And every time you offer an explanation, every time you offer an answer, they just come back with, but why? But why? But why? But help me out, moms. There's an answer coming. Am I telling the truth? There's an answer coming that will end this conversation. And I have found that moms arrive at that answer much quicker than dads do. A dad will sit there and endeavor to get the logic into the head of the toddler. But am I telling the truth? Is there an answer coming? What is the answer to but why that will end the conversation? Because I said so. Because I said so. I see a head nod, right? Because I said so. And it's supposed to end the whole but why conversation. Do you know how many people? Children of God have been in a decades-long but why conversation with God. I love you. Oh, but why? My baby, I love you. Yeah, but why, God? I'm so unworthy. I'm just a dead dog. I'm just a worm. But why? Why do you love me? Well, baby, I love you. But why? Oh, why? Oh, why? Oh, why? There is an answer 
coming. If you will hear it from the heart of the Father, it will end the but why confusion conversation that you've been having with him forever. And if you will listen to your father when he says to you, I love you because I said so. Because I said so. You are loved because I said you are loved. You are my child because I said you are my child. Are we done? <laughs> yes, sir. Yes, sir, we are done. And he said, we have this spirit, Romans chapter 8, we have this spirit of adoption, and it's out of this spirit that we cry out, Abba, Father. That's basically Greek for daddy, dada. Do you remember when your child said dada? Dads, do you remember that? The first time you heard dada? I know it changed my life. I know it thrilled my soul. Where does that come from? Because that's the heart of the Father that's in us. Could he really be so pleased with a simple dada that comes out in faith, confident that he loves us? That's the spirit of adoption crying out. And in the same chapter, Romans chapter 8, if you skip ahead to verse 31, again, the Spirit of God through Paul says, What then shall we say to these things? If God, or let's say it like this, if the Father is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? I've given you all things. Oh, but why? Because I love you. I love you. Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? He says, is it God who justifies you? Who's going to charge you? And this is why we got to be careful as believers that we don't spend our time charging and condemning one another. I have no right to charge you with a sin. I'm guilty of all the same stuff you are. You can't be charging each other with guilt and sin and condemnation. Why are you guilty of all the same stuff? The only one who could have charged you and condemned you chose instead to justify you. Chose instead to free you. Why would he do that? My father loves me. He loves me. He said in verse 34, who is he who condemns? Is it Christ who died and furthermore is also risen? who is even at the right hand of God, who makes intercession for us? Jesus, the only one who could have condemned us. The only one who could have rightfully picked up a stone to stone us, to put us to death, to charge us with a sin and a crime, and to condemn us to death. The only one who could have done it. Why could he have done it? Because he was perfect. The only one who never made the mistake. Chose instead to die for you, take your sin upon him, and to be raised again in order to justify you. He went through all that. Is he going to turn around and now condemn you? No. Why would he do that? One answer. Love. He loved you. He said in verse 35, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation? What's the answer? No. Shall distress? No. Persecution? No. Famine? No. Nakedness? Peril? Sword? Can any of these things separate us from the love of the Father? No. 
As it's written, for your sake, we're killed all day long. We're accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And he said, I'm persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of the Father, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Nothing can separate you from the love of the Father. Amen. Guys, go ahead. Would you stand up? I was laying in bed last night kind of laid there awake for a while, not able to sleep, meditating on some of these things. And I decided I was going to do what dad did. And I just laid there for, I don't know, half hour, maybe longer. My father loves me. My father loves me. My father loves me. And what I was doing was just looking at the love, beholding the love. And I'm encouraging you church to do the same thing. In the coming days, and not just these days, but for the rest of your life, when you get distracted by things going on around you, turn your gaze back to the love of the Father. When fear tries to creep up, turn your eyes back to the love of the Father. Why? Because perfect love will cast out all fear. My Father loves me. Say it out loud. My Father loves me. A lot of times when I'm getting ready to come minister to you, I ask the Lord, I say, is there something in your word a story, uh, an illustration that perfectly demonstrates this. And I laid there asking him about it last night. And the first thing that came to my mind was the father and the prodigal son. And how that young boy went to his father and he said, Father, give me the portion of goods that falls to me. Church, we got to have a deeper relationship with God than that. Yes, he's a giving God. Yes, he is a God who will bless and bless abundantly, bless lavishly. But you and I got to have a deeper friendship and fellowship with him than Father, give me. Father, give me, he said, the portion of goods that falls to me. And he did. The Bible says not many days after, he loaded up and he went to a far country and he wasted all of it on riotous living. And a famine hit the land. He was broke. He found himself joined to a citizen of that country, doing hard, forced, manual labor, out in the fields feeding pigs. So starving, so hungry that he looked down at what the pigs were eating and, and thought, well, that looks good. The Bible says he would have gladly fed himself with the pig's food. But then Jesus said, this young boy came to himself. You know, sometimes people just got to come to themselves. And that's what happened with this young guy. He just came to himself. And he said to himself, all the servants in my father's house have plenty to eat with enough to spare. What's he saying? Man, they got extra. That guy's so loaded. My father is so loaded that even the servants have extra. He said, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to go home. I'm going to tell my dad I'm not worthy to be called his son. I'm going to say, just, just make me a hired servant. And then at least I'll have something to eat. So you know what happened. He starts walking home and his father sees him from a long way off. Jesus said he was moved with compassion, 
not anger, not resentment, not bitterness, not judgment, compassion. He was so moved with it that he ran towards his son, fell on him, kissed him. And as his son, I guess, is pushing him away, saying, wait, 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 father, I'm not worthy to be called your son. He had this whole speech prepared. And his father's like, yeah, 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 shut up. And starts calling to the servants. And you know what he said? Bring the best robe. And if you look at the footnote in your Bible, you know what it actually said? Quick. He said, quick, go get the best robe and put it on him. Somebody help me. Who in that house would have the best robe? That's the father's robe. That's the robe of righteousness. And I love that he said, go do it and do it quick. You know what he didn't say? Well, you can put my robe on, but we're going to have to get you cleaned up. You stink. You're filthy. You go get washed up and then I'll robe you. No, he said, quick, go put my robe and let my robe cover all the filth. My robe will cover all the stench, that robe of righteousness. And the robe that we've been given because of the love of our Father is not just a robe that covers, it's a robe that washes away. He said, quick, go get the robe and put it on him. He said, get a ring and put it on his finger. You know what that is? That's authority. That signet ring that says, I belong to this father. That's like autographing this boy, putting a name on him, restoring to him the authority of a son in this house. Go get sandals and put them on his feet. See, he went home with the mentality, I'm just going to be a servant in this house. And servants didn't wear sandals. Sons wore sandals. You know what the father's saying? You're my son put sandals on his feet, restore his righteousness, restore his identity, restore his sonship. Why on earth would the father do that? One reason, love. Say it again. My father loves me. Thank you so much for tuning in today. We hope you enjoyed this message. If you need someone to pray with you, there are several ways for you to contact us. Feel free to give us a call at 817-577-0180. You can also contact us through the Legacy Studios app or either of our websites. Giving options are available online at pearsonsministries.com and legacychurch.family. If you prefer, you can also text an offering. Simply text LEGACY and any dollar amount to the number 28950 and follow the prompts. Be blessed today. We love you. And remember, you are always welcome here in the house of faith.